You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So this week marks the beginning of, of Lent <clears throat> with Ash Wednesday, which coincidentally is also Valentine's Day, uh, which seems inappropriate, but actually I think it's, it's actually really appropriate um, because, uh, well, I've got a, a meme that I found uh, this week online that I feel like really speaks to the appropriateness of Valentine's Day falling on Ash Wednesday. I, maybe you've seen the rock meme before this is anyway. What are you doing on Valentine's Day? He asks, rubbing dirt on people's faces and telling them they're going to die. Um, yes, I think that's it. I think that Ash Wednesday, and I'm going to talk about that today, is ultimately, yeah, about contemplating mortality and finitude and the human condition, which to me is an act of love, I think, and an affirmation of life, even though it's kind of sobering and perhaps a little sad, I think it's ultimately an act of love and a way of affirming life. So Valentine's Day, Ash Wednesday, that combo, I'm all about it. And I want to talk about Ash Wednesday a little bit today. Uh, we're not really <clears throat> really a liturgical church per se. Yeah, we do liturgy here. Um, we don't like make Lent a big deal. Um, in other words, like fasting and whatnot. But I still think that recognizing church tradition is a big part of what grounds us uh, as a community, as a spiritual community, particularly as a as a Christian spiritual community, even though there are people here who do not identify as Christian anymore, we affirm that. And I think that's part of what how we understand what it means to actually be a Christian community. It's not about a label. It's about a way of life. Um, but I want to talk about Lent and Ash Wednesday. <clears throat> I want to talk about Lent over the next month or so and what that what I think that means, what we think that means. But today, I want to talk about Ash Wednesday, and I'm going to clear my throat. Excuse me. That's better. Um, I will actually be here on Wednesday from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. If anyone wants the imposition of ashes, you can come, and I will administer those. And what happens, it's not a service. It's not like a presentation, per se. It's just a moment where, and this is traditionally how it works, the pastor or priest has uh, a dish of ashes and they take a little bit on their finger and they make the sign of the cross on your forehead and they say these words, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. Remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. These words come from the Old Testament, aka the Hebrew Bible, probably a couple of different places. The two that I think of, Genesis chapter 3, where God in the story of the Garden of Eden tells Adam and Eve at the end, you are dust. And to dust you shall return. You're mortal. You're finite. You're creatures. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says something similar. For the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Who knows <clears throat> whether the spirit of an animal goes down into the earth and the spirit of a person goes up into the heavens. They all have the same breath. And humans, <clears throat> excuse me, they all have the same breath. And humans have no advantage 
over the animals. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all turn to dust again. On the surface, this seems a little depressing, right? To say we're dust and ashes is, of course, to highlight our mortality and the inevitability of death and the uncertainty of what, if anything, comes after. This, to me, is the meaning of Lent, part of the meaning of Lent in Ash Wednesday. It's a time of humility and sober reflection on our mortality, a time where we make peace with our mortality and the uncertainty that, that surrounds it. Now, that's not the typical understanding of Lent and Ash Wednesday, to be clear. And, and these words, you are dust and to dust you shall return. The typical understanding is that we are to focus on the, on the eternal things of heaven, and the eternal things of faith and piety and not focus on the temporal things of this life and this world and the concerns of our bodies, which serve as a distraction, we're told, from the things of God, the eternal things beyond. That's the typical understanding of Ash Wednesday and Lent. To say you are dust and to dust you shall return means don't focus on the temporal things of this life, but focus on the eternal things of of God and heaven beyond. But I don't like that take so much. I much prefer the take that says, make peace with your mortality and the uncertainty of what comes after death. But this is not a popular take in the church because the church often engages, meaning the, the global church or the, the larger church, often engages in something called spiritual bypass. How many of you have heard that term before, spiritual bypass? Okay, a couple of you. What's spiritual bypassing, you might be wondering? The term was introduced in the 1980s by a man, John Wellwood, a Buddhist teacher and psychotherapist. He came up with the term after noting that many people resort to spirituality to avoid difficult or painful things which can in turn stall their emotional or spiritual development. Let me share a few examples. The first of which is a joke, which was told by the late Alan Watts, the philosopher and spiritualist of the 50s and 60s. It goes like this. There was once a dinner party at a very fine English country house where the hostess started up a conversation about death. <laughs> you know, as you do at dinner parties, I guess. Uh, and she asked her guests what they thought was going to happen to them after they die. And some of them talked about reincarnation. Others talked about how they're going to exist on a different plane of being. Or their consciousness will go on in a different form. Others speculated that, no, we're just going to, when we die, we're dead. We're just going to cease to exist. All the guests had answered except Sir Roderick, who was a very devout Christian, a pillar, in fact, of the Church of England and a leader in the local parish. So the hostess said to him, Sir Roderick, you haven't said a word. What do you think is going to happen to you after you die? And he replied, oh, I'm, I'm perfectly certain that I shall go to heaven and enjoy everlasting bliss but I really don't like talking about such depressing things. Can we please change the subject? <laughs> and 
This is a common form of spiritual bypass. Often the devout claim to be sure of their destiny in the sweet by and by, but unconsciously they're very uncertain about it. They still harbor anxiety, and despite appearing otherwise, thus their religious beliefs allow them to bypass and avoid an encounter with the reality of death and their uncertainty about it. Spiritual bypass can look another way too. I remember when I was 10 years old and I was at my grandfather's funeral. This was the death of my, my mother's father. And I remember, I remember my father saying to me during the, um, there's usually a, a lunch after the memorial service. I remember my father saying to me, as he looked around the room and saw people crying at the tables, all these people who are crying have no faith. Your grandfather was a Christian, and he's in heaven now. If these people believe that, they'd be celebrating and not crying. In other words, Christians shouldn't grieve the death of fellow Christians because they're in a better place now, we're told. We should be celebrating, and, and those who don't are faithless and should be ashamed. Right? This is, this is terrible. Just this week, somebody actually reached out to me over Facebook Messenger, and I have her permission to sh share this. She doesn't go to this church, but she's dealing with this very same issue in her family right now over the death of her grandfather. She feels very distressed over the pressure not to grieve because her evangelical family members are saying, don't, don't grieve, don't be upset, he's, he's in heaven. He's not dead, not really. And so she was asking me for my advice or what I think a Christian response to death might look like. And so I told her, having hope in the afterlife is great, but it's not certainty. We can't be certain of it. That doesn't make us weak or faithless. Loss is loss, whether there is an afterlife or not. When we lose someone in this life, they are gone, at least for now. And that's painful. For Christians to ignore that or, or to condemn such a reality or, or others for grieving that, that's really unhealthy and only adds to the pain. So have hope, I told her. But acknowledge that's really all it is. It's hope. Loss is real and painful. Grieving is normal and healthy. That's what I said. And you can imagine she reacted positively. She appreciated that point of view. But, but spiritual bypass is very common in the church, in communities of faith, especially like conservative communities of faith, right? Especially around death and dying. It's scary. And to be honest, you know, sometimes it's, it's kind of necessary for the bereaved. Sometimes people can't handle it. And some spiritual bypassing can actually be kind of like a defense mechanism that helps them get up the next day, face tomorrow. But eventually, even they must grieve in order to be healthy, I believe. Grief is a healthy, normal human response that we all have to experience, engage in. 
repressed grief always works itself out in our lives in unhealthy ways. And, and sometimes looking at other spiritual traditions and the way they deal with grief and death, I think it'd be helpful. In Buddhism, and I'm not an expert in Buddhism, but I've looked at it and I've studied it a little bit. In Buddhism, meditating on or contemplating death, impermanence, and change can actually be a very freeing thing and a really, if we even use the word relaxing, but something that releases anxiety, something that um, leads to less anxiety about death, not more. In Buddhism, to embrace one's impermanence and the impermanence of all things in nature is actually a path to serenity. It's a path to treasuring the present moment. It's a path to treasuring this here and now. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. You don't, because you know that this will not last forever. And that's okay. It's, that's okay. Things don't have to last forever for them to be meaningful. Let me say that again. Things do not have to last forever for them to be meaningful. This notion that for something to, to be truly meaningful, that it must be permanent and unchanging, this is problematic, I think, and, and not in line with the nature of all things, the nature of the universe. The nature of the universe is that of change, impermanence, growth, development, entropy, decline, construction, then deconstruction, then reconstruction, and the cycle just keeps going. I'm reminded of the Buddhist practice of making mandalas. And I wish I had a photo of one here today, but just imagine this in your mind. What is it? These mandalas are, are beautiful, complex works of art that monks create out of different colored sand that they, that they pour by hand in these beautiful, complex, intricate designs. A monk or a group of monks will spend days or even weeks painstakingly making these these mandalas, and then when they're finished, they just they take it apart and they dump the sand back in the river from which it came from, which for those of us in the West, we see that as like a waste or something, but it's not. The, the point is that it's a meditation on and an affirmation of life and, and beauty and the inherent transient nature of all things, including us. And how so much of what we create and do in life, that it's beautiful and it's meaningful, but it's not permanent. It won't last forever. And again, this, this doesn't have to be depressing. It can actually be something freeing and life-giving and beautiful if we want it to be. We have the power to make it so. We can accept this. We, we really can. We can affirm our lives such as they are in all of their temporality and uncertainty. We can make peace with transience and impermanence. We really can. And I think this is a path to a deeper and richer kind of life, a, a path to a deeper and richer kind of spirituality. Death, change, and impermanence does not need to be treated like an enemy for us to delight in life.
That's actually a paraphrase of something Richard Alpert, a.k.a. Ramdas, once said. Death, impermanence, and change does not need to be treated like an enemy for us to delight in life. Unfortunately, though, traditional Christianity has taught us the opposite, that death is the ultimate enemy that must be destroyed so that we might have peace and no, life and meaning and all of that. We're, we're told that by Paul that death is the ultimate enemy that must be destroyed so that we might delight in life. But I don't believe that anymore. Rather, quite the opposite. I think death and impermanence can be treated as a part of life because it is a part of life. It can be treated as a part of life, and in that way, it can be embraced. We can delight more in life that way. This, too, is what I think it means to say, we are dust, and to dust we shall return. Going back to the mandala metaphor, consider that the whole universe is basically a mandala made of dust and ashes, organized and intricate and beautiful designs like the galaxies, the stars, the planets. Thanks, Bob. There you go. The whole universe is a mandala made of dust and ashes, the galaxies, the stars, the planets, you and me, and everything else. Everything is dust, stardust to be exact. That's just a fact of science. That's physics. Everything is made of stardust. Everything is made of the dust and ashes left over after the Big Bang and the dust and ashes left over after the death and disintegration of countless stars over the course of billions of years. The elements that make up the pew you're sitting in, your own body. They were forged in the heat, in the furnace of distant stars over billions of years. That's where it all comes from. Everything is stardust, which is actually a way of saying something grand and cosmic about us, rather than small or sad to say you are dust. Say that you're stardust to say that you're cosmic. And here's where things get really wild. It's the belief of many today, including me, that, that stardust is not just cold, dead, mindless stuff, but it's enchanted with spirit, energy, mind, consciousness, something like this. The most compelling theories today about how life came to exist in a universe made up of non-living components, is that the components, the dust, it's not actually non-living, but it's endowed, it's enchanted with mind or consciousness or spirit or some kind of living energy. This is cutting-edge stuff today. Theories of consciousness mixed with physics. In other words, Stardust is not cold, dead, mindless stuff. Matter in space and time is not just cold, dead, mindless stuff. But coursing with mind and consciousness that the mystics and the ancients called God, and that we may so too. This is where I lean today. 
So to say you are dust and to dust you shall return is really to say something grand and, and cosmic and beautiful about us. It's to say that you are spirit and to spirit you shall return. You are mind and to mind you shall return. You are cosmic and to the cosmos you shall return. You are God and to God you shall return. This has been the insight of the mystics over the ages. I don't know what all this means about the afterlife. And frankly, I don't really care that much anymore. But these are my thoughts on Ash Wednesday and these words. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. This morning, I've asked Max to play a song for communion that I think speaks to these themes I've discussed today of embracing our complexity, both on our mortality and impermanence, but also our cosmic and divine nature, because I believe it's both. We're a mixed bag. Life is a mixed bag. But we can embrace it and make peace with it and find serenity in the midst of it. We can make peace with our dustiness. And today, as we partake in communion, I encourage you to meditate on what that might mean for you and contemplate or meditate on this idea that in communion, we're taught as Christians, here is the body and the blood of Jesus. God was made flesh. God was made human. God was made dust to show that the dust, the human, is really divine. But this is part of the deeper meaning of this holy sacrament. By ingesting it, we are in fact saying, God is in me and I am in God and we are one. And yeah, it's all dust, but it's all God. Contemplate that, meditate on that this morning as you receive Holy Sacrament. And the way that we do this here, for those of you who are new, you take one of the gluten-free crackers and you dip it in the grape juice and then you receive it. And then you serve the person next to you. Uh, you don't come forward so that the pastor or priest serves you. You serve each other. You are Christ for each other. You are God in each other's lives. Manifestations of the divine in each other's lives. Be blessed in this now. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Thanks, Max. I love that song. So every week here at Central, as part of our time together, we have a discussion. It's not just about listening to the guy up front talk. It's about us listening to each other. So we like to open it up for questions or comments, reflections on what was spoken about. Anything kind of goes. And for those of you joining us via Zoom, um, my understanding is you can unmute and raise your voice that way. And we'll be able to hear you here in the sanctuary. <clears throat> but yeah, any anybody today want to talk about? Yeah, Angie, thank you for being quick. 
Um, this isn't like really that deep, but I've never heard of spiritual bypass in my, you know, decade of attending this place. And it's such a kind way to say denial. And I really yeah. felt deeply how much that explained away so much of my upbringing. I mean, I went to a Christian school for 12 years and even now I still deal with that all the time in my family. And I, I feel like that, that almost like explains away the hard stuff that my family doesn't want to talk about. Um, and I just, I appreciate that term because I think that almost made me understand them a little bit better and their, how stuck they are in their evangelical ways. So. No, thanks. Yeah. I feel like that might actually be the first time I've mentioned it, but I think Leanne, you mentioned spiritual bypass last week, which when I was writing it, right. There you go. Good job, Leanne. Um, when I was preparing my thoughts for this week, I was like, clicked. Like, oh yeah. Spiritual bypass. That's what I'm talking about. Leanne brought that up. I, it's not a term I've used much, but yeah. It did come up last week. I think that was the first time it came up. <laughs> but uh, no, it's definitely um, a dynamic I think a lot of us grew up with. We just didn't have a name for it. Um, but realizing that has been part of this journey of deconstruction, right? Um, yeah. What are the thoughts today that came up during this or questions? You know, I'd love to also invite anybody to talk about how their own attitudes or beliefs about death in the afterlife maybe have changed or are changing and what does that story look like for you i'd love to hear that you know too if anybody yeah emily pass that down thanks i told diana i didn't have anything to say and she said that's shocking and then i was like <laughs> all right fine i'll say something um <laughs> it sort of made me think about the term works as it applies in the Bible, like, because I think that ties into the whole spiritual bypass situation. It's like, what are the works and what does, what did Jesus say we're supposed to do in the way of works? Because I think spiritual bypasses is something I've also talked about, which I think is, I say, um, religious irresponsibility or something, because it just, it just creates a term that excuses all of the things that they just push away and you know focus on and it's about me and god it's not about blah 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 and i just think <clears throat> the works are what we're supposed to do when we're here we are supposed to be doing what jesus did when he was here and if you're not doing those things how can you be so sure that you're going to heaven is sort of like like how how, how does that equal that you know but there's a lot of logic or lack of logic i think in today's thinking of what you know what that means what going to heaven means and if you're so focused on what other people are doing if you care what gender someone identifies with if you won't love your kid and throw them out on the street because they're gay you're on the wrong side of the street you're on the wrong side of everything and i don't think that that's the works that you're supposed to be doing you're not supposed to walk around pointing fingers so it just makes me feel like that's what it's really about because i think when you turn to dust like what is what did the dust mean when it was you really you know what i mean i think so yeah um that's a really good question about you know how, piety 
And this common evangelical focus on the afterlife becomes a dodge, a way of bypassing what does it mean to actually be Christ in the world? What does it actually mean to live this out? And um, faith that, you know, should be living in our actions, not in our heads as, you know, this otherworldly thing. Yeah, no, it's a really good point, Emily. Thank you for those thoughts. Somebody else. Um, so I, um, I find that I struggle with the way um, religions separate and uh, uh, claim to be the right, the true religion, and put fear into everything, and the scapegoat of well, it's God's will, or when people repent, and now all, all of it disappears, whatever bad behavior disappears, well, you could have shot someone, and well, I repented, and yet that person is still done on the street. It's, I think we get so caught up on, well, I'm Christian, and I, you know, it's all in a word, rather than an action, and maybe I'm going to burn in hell, but I, I don't think, now here I go, You're not gonna I don't think that Jesus intended us to bend our knees and pray to him. I think he intended to be partnering with mankind to say, we are a flesh and blood here. Christianity is what we become in the greatest consciousness of how we all come together when we separate from this human experience. And I'm just very, where's the accountability? It's God's will. There needs to be accountability. I'm God. I'm a hybrid God. I've existed. For, the last time I was here, it, there was something that stuck with me. I think you said it was in Psalms that Jesus got in trouble because he said, that in, in paraphrasing, that he is God and so are you. We're all God. And that is so true. That's accountability. It's saying you have a responsibility to act in the path like of a, of a parent who teaches a child these are good choices. I hope you abide by them. You may get a little sidetracked and we'll bring you back. But the whole point is be accountable. Just be accountable. Oh, thank you for those thoughts. Yeah. I, I might be in blasphemy or whatever, but um, because religions are evangelicals, to me, focus on so many bells and whistles and, you know, they're, they hide behind the beard of Jesus's beard. And uh, I was wondering or thinking, I don't need Jesus to have been from a virgin. I don't need him to be the son of God. Like some, you know, I look at him, let's say he was just a human, but he, as he said, I am what, you, you know, I am he but so are you, meaning he was the rebel that was willing to do that, to be so, you know, rebellious of the religions and stuff like that, so radical that he was willing to put his money where his mouth was, and he had it so well that he did, wasn't afraid of death, you know, because he knew somebody had to speak up, and the things that he went through, you know, and stuff like that. Father, have you forsaken me? He went through all the human, you know, emotions and everything, but lived as a person that could be in the flesh and say, 
we're all the same. If you know, if you, I am the way, meaning I'm the way, meaning like perhaps what I'm saying is is a is a better you know way to go, instead of all this dogma and stuff. Anyway, just no, yeah, great thoughts, and you know, I think we forget. <clears throat> I mean, I definitely wasn't raised being told that Jesus was arrested and sentenced to death by the religious leaders for blasphemy because he, a mere man, made himself out to be divine. And then also told his followers and those around him, the so-called nothings and nobodies, that you too are sons and daughters of God, just like me. I mean, especially in John's gospel. You know, this, this high Christology exists, meaning this high, high understanding of Jesus' divinity. And then he shares that divinity with us. When he, you, you talked about that psalm that says, you are gods, speaking to us. And Jesus quotes that in John. He caught hell for that, caught the cross. And we're not taught this understanding of Jesus in the church, this blasphemous Jesus who equated himself with God and us with God and was charged and convicted of blasphemy and then turned over to Pilate for crimes against the state, which we can get into more in this Lenten series, and I intend to. But that's such an important understanding of Christ. And in the first three or four centuries of the church, that idea was orthodox. Athanasius, the fourth century church father, said, God became man so that man might become God. He put it in patriarchal terms because that was the culture. Sorry, ladies. But we can say God became human so that humanity might see themselves as God. This mystical understanding that we and God are one. It's not about, you know, not a power trip here, okay? It's about understanding our own divinity and the divinity of those around us in a way of humanizing each other on a deeper level, loving each other on a deeper level. That's what it's about. We're going to talk more about that over the next month as we get into Lent and the, this understanding of Christ's sufferings in the world, especially at the hands of the religious authorities and the cross. We'll talk about the cross a lot over the next month. But yeah, good stuff. Thank you for bringing that up. Other thoughts today? Yeah, Randy, could you pass that back? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I was just thinking about um, back in the day when I was going to a conservative Christian church and we would know what does it mean to serve the lord and part of that was going to street preaching and handing out tracks and, yeah and i remember going out one day and we were handing out tracks and another group was coming toward us handing out tracks i think they were jehovah's witnesses but they said oh we got the truth you know we have the truth yeah and i just said oh we got the beat <laughs> so go goes reference what what would what, you say that i said funny. we got the beat it's a go goes reference nice. or something but my um Thoughts is like, what does it really mean to serve God, to love one another and take care of each other? Just what can I do in this life? Um, and this takes the pressure off because it's like you had to witness to every single person around you because if they went to hell, then their blood was on your hands. And it's just like stressful sometimes. <laughs> you know, if I don't witness to them, they go to hell, I'm going to be held accountable or something, you know. But it's just seeing people as people, not someone I need to save constantly. You know, yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Randy. Mm. Leanne. Yeah, just a quick comment. I like what um, you were saying about the word partner. And to me, a thought could be that I think spiritual bypassing can, uh, can occur when 
we treat Jesus as an idol to worship as opposed to a partner. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Or a template. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Jason. Um, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff to go on. I um I was thinking about the dust to dust and the value of the life in the here and now. Hmm. And, you know, and especially when you think about like the historic kind of Christian, Christian, you know, other kind of Christian, you know, push against like death is bad, you know, and we have to overcome the grave and yada, yada, yada. As like, sure, you know, that was really meaningful for like a medieval serf, right? You know, who had no power. And, you know, you really wanted to give them something to hope for, you know, because they really had no power, you know? And so that's meaningful. And that's why there's a lot of it in a true steep tradition. But in the modern, it's been a long time since we've been medieval serfs. And now it almost is like, I think someone else said, like a little bit of a cop-out from living in the here and now, which also has the burden, right? The overwhelming burden of like, what does it mean to live like Christ in the here and now? Like with modern complex problems, where we're supposed to do something about it, right? Or at least try, you know, and it's overwhelming. So it can be easy to go into spiritual bypass and be like, I'm just gonna hang out in my suburban home way outside the city and focus on my relationship with God, (laughs) you know, and not have to look at these really difficult policy problems or life problems, right? But isn't that an opportunity then and then it kind of ties back to like almost like a mystical kind of a faith is like, well, if we believe that nothing is too hard for God, you know, shouldn't we at least try? You know, it, what does that take a step of faith to seemingly attack like an impossible problem, like homelessness or mental illness or substance use and why it's so prevalent or, you know, suicide among rural white men over 50 you know, which is an epidemic. It's a huge epidemic, right? And it seems like impossible, but supposedly as Christians, we're, you know, we're supposed to believe that there's like this kind of power there that's going to support us in some way or another when we go to do it. So there's that a step of faith, you know, rather than kind of a supernatural hope in (laughs) a a mansion after I die. (laughs) Yeah, good thoughts, good questions. Anybody else today? Yeah, Emily, sure. Hello again. Well, because he made me think of something that was I had never considered before. I mean, I had, but like, I guess not in this, you know, anyway, like, I guess in certain times, right, we use religion for like what we need it for. So it sort of means something different. And I think it makes perfect sense that like our parents, um, uh, because they had in their time, having trauma in your home was normal, right? Like everyone had trauma in their home and you were not to be vulnerable. You were not to show your emotions. You were taught to pretend that everything was fine. You didn't discuss how you felt, you know? Um, And I think that that actually is completely um, tracks with the spiritual irresponsibility because it was, it was a way for them to, deal with their trauma. Like, oh, I can give this to God and then I can just walk free and not have to do anything about anything because I am now at peace when they're really not, right? Because it's still there. But it then makes sense that now in the world that we live today, right, dealing with these issues today, we're about other people. We're like, well, wait a minute. 
We don't want to live in that trauma that we watched you all go through. We don't want to have to do that and do it to each other. We want to take care of each other rather than just ourselves. And that just makes sense as to why my parents don't understand my Christianity, you know? Yeah. Because for them, it's so meaningful Yeah. to do it the way they do. I mean, you're describing the way I grew up, too. I think right. a lot of us, and I think our generation, not to say that we've got it all figured out, <laughs> but, you know, I, I do think there is a dynamic that's significantly different between our generation and our parents' generation, whereby I think, you know, us going to therapy is not looked down upon the way that their generation might have looked down. Does that make sense? And um, being more thoughtful and more introspective about, and frankly, just knowledgeable about social dynamics and trauma and attachment theories and all of all of that. So, you know, I, I think we were, somehow we grew up, not all of us, but I think a lot of us grew up um, in a way, and we're here today in this space because I think, we fundamentally grew up differently socially than they did. Um, woke, Aaron. Well, yeah, I guess that's the term, you know? Um, yeah, I think that's part of, I think that's part of it, that kind of social awareness. And maybe that's driven by the internet and social media somewhat. And, um, frankly, the universities, you know, um, that made us more socially, emotionally intelligent than former generations. Not to say that we've got it all figured out. And we're not, we're not going to have, you know, our children aren't going to have to, you know, deal with us or, or go to therapy to talk about us down the road. I don't know. Um, but I, I do think that that dynamic generation is quite different that you're pointing out. And religion factors into that. What religion is used for, how we're using our Christianity, our faith, compared to our parents' generation is radically different. And that's why, as you put it, like react, they, they react against that, like you're not really a Christian. <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. All right, maybe one more comment or question if anybody has yes and uh, welcome back uh, beth is that your first name yeah welcome back uh, maybe just a word of hope uh, yeah good let's end with a word of hope <laughs> okay i'll try yeah. so i was listening to a lecture this morning on uh, other faith traditions and, and and so much of what you're talking about just fit right in and the comments from the room are just have all come together in this amazing place and we are all uh made by those who influence us and you're all influencing me now one of my influences is a man named pierre Teilhard de chardin uh 1881 to 1955 so mystic jesuit priest scientist very long story very short he was an evolutionist he was uh censored by the church not he was not allowed to teach uh, but all of his stuff is now breaking through because now is the time he called the universe and our experience as humans god's love project we're all in here right now going out into the world after this is part of god's love project we there's uh, you know a hell of a lot of stuff going on that's bad and the issues that is it jason you raised i mean we we need to work on those things that call us and in Teilhard's thinking the omega is the Christ, the universal Christ, calling all matter, all dust, all things forward. We're, we're evolving every second and being part of God's love project for me is a way of purposing myself, helping me 
get up the next day. And this morning, we were also reminded in this lecture of the resurrection story in John, John, the gospel of the heart, where Mary, you know, she mistakes Jesus or Christ for the gardener. And he, what does he tell her? He says, don't hold on to me. I'm, don't try to make me permanent. The Eastern religions are about eminence, God in, within, impermanence. And Westerns are more like permanence, transcendent. We go off to heaven, right? And it, he says, don't hold on to me. You know, keep, keep your hands, keep your heart open and, and be me. You know, we're, we're here as stardust, full of spirit. You know, in Teilhard de Chardin's thinking, God is an actual, he was a physicist, he is an energy source called love that brings vitality to everything. I think that's a great, yeah, and that's a great reflection to end with. Thank you, Beth. And let us conclude, as we always do, by saying this joint benediction together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. Go in peace. Thank you.